Jesus, it's a monumental thing to step up to the word of God uh, and to seek to see the king of heaven, the, the lord of all creation in it. Um, uh, lord, I feel an extra, an extra burden and an extra joy and an extra wonder at it this week as we come to the cross, to the, the focal point of history. Everything leading up to it and everything past it, all pointing to this one thing. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today through your word and that you would lead us to see Jesus and as we see him to be like him, uh, as we um, know more of you, Jesus, and, and know to love more of you more and glorify you more, we would be led to become more like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're right, right at the end of, of Luke's gospel in our series, Luke, the Limitless Gospel. Um, just, just a few weeks from finishing this series, and you might go, a few weeks, that sounds like a whole series. But we've been going in this since October 2019, so it's, it's been a while. Um, uh, and I feel like a number of times as we've been walking through this, we've reached points in this gospel where... I've got up here and I've started a sermon by saying something along the lines of, well, this is one of the big moments, you know, everything's been building to this, um, this, this uh, something that's been uh, worked out from the beginning. And so, and here it is finally coming to the fore. You know, there's, there's loads of these moments, just to skim across a few of them. You have, you know, the birth of Jesus, which is the climax of the, the well, the nativity narrative or the birth narrative, if you will. Uh, you have, uh, the launch of Jesus' ministry back in Luke 4 to 5, where we were like, hey, this is this big thing that's finally come. It's been really building to this for four or five chapters. And then, then there's the escalating theme, of course, of the identity and the authority of Jesus that worked out across the first nine chapters of the book and kind of swells up in these increasing waves of who is this guy and, and what is he here to do? And finally, you get up to Luke chapter 9, and Luke asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. And, and, and it's like this big wave, a big moment that's been built to the whole time. And on the back of that climactic declaration, Jesus sets out for Jerusalem. And we see these escalating tensions with the religious leaders and escalating moments of greatness and goodness from Jesus until we uh, reach that climactic moment where Jesus arrives. You know, through that whole 10 chapters from Luke 9 to Luke 19, you have, you have these reminders going on all the time that he was going towards Jerusalem. He was heading there. He says a few times, I'm going to die. Uh, that's a paraphrase. Um, but yeah, and, 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 and since he arrived in Jerusalem, we've had these uh, big moments of the, the challenges of the king, we called them, as Jesus is repeatedly under fire, under opposition from uh, every enemy that po could possibly have come against him. Um, we deal with uh, first a period of, of days, maybe weeks uh, before the cross, and then it escalates again. We have the big moment of the day before, the night before the cross, uh, and then the day of, which we looked at last week. Um, but today is different, uh, because today is the cross, and all of these other big moments have led to this big moment cross of Jesus and later his, uh, his empty tomb uh, are the top of the tower, the peak of events. Uh, this is the great uh, challenge of the king, so to speak. This is the climax of Luke's gospel as a whole. 
Uh, and not just Luke's gospel, the bold claim of the Bible and of Christians throughout history has been that these events are the great peak of history, uh, which everything beforehand was working up towards and everything since has looked back to as the, the central moment of history. This is the climactic moment of climactic moments. Over this uh, week and next, we come to hear about the greatest moment that history has ever produced. And not just in some distant historical sense, uh, but also the greatest moment in our personal history as people. Because as we look at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, as his followers, we declare, by this we are saved. By this I am saved. By this I know God's love for me. By these events, our sins are defeated. Our death is defeated. Our relationship with God and also with each other is, is restored and reconciled. Our hope for all of eternity is made certain here as Jesus dies and rises. And it's incredible, isn't it? If you're a, if you're a Christian and have been for a while, we can fall into a place where we assume the gospel, I think. Uh, we assume how great this story of the cross of Jesus is, but as a result, we're uh, ready to talk about something else often. Um, we kind of skim it. But if we stop and we look at what happens here in, in Luke's gospel, it's, it's shocking, it's breathtaking, and it's even potentially quite baffling how this goes. You know, think about it this way. When you think of a rescuer or a hero, uh, what do you think of? I think we often think of someone, you know, mighty and powerful. And, and don't get me wrong, there's power in Jesus. Uh, but as we come to this passage, to this central moment, look at the Jesus that we have before us presented in the words of this gospel. He's nothing like all of that in, in how this presents him. We get these, I, I would say, three aspects of the picture of Jesus uh, that I'd like to start today by emphasizing, uh, because, because Luke emphasizes these. Um, the first aspect of the picture of Jesus that we see here is Jesus, weak and broken. Is the clicker working now? Wonderful. Now, remember what's just happened. Jesus has just uh, been beaten by a variety of different people. It's happened a few times now. He's gone from trial to trial, Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate again. Uh, some of the other gospel accounts record more details on the Roman beating of Jesus. They say that he, they scourged him, uh, meaning that he was whipped with a whip that has like bits of bone and metal and glass woven into it. Uh, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. Leaving crucifixion aside, this is, this is on its own a horrific punishment, right? And then as we join our passage, we read that the soldiers grab a guy named Simon uh, and, and uh, they force him to carry the cross of Jesus up the hill. Um, now, just pausing, doesn't that seem like an odd inclusion in the story to you? Um, I still have questions around this, to be honest. Um, you know, I never, but I never really got why Simon gets a mention here before, um, because it almost seems like, it feels a bit like they're going easy on him, doesn't it? Like, it almost seems like they're 
um, you know, letting it, well, you, you're going to get crucified, so we'll get someone else to carry the cross for you. You know, you don't have to go through that, which seems like an odd thing in this narrative about Jesus carrying the weight of the world on him. Uh, but then I got to thinking about it this week and I realized that um, what's happening here, Jesus, our great hero, by this point in the story, is so weak, so broken, bloodied, that he was not physically capable of carrying a cross. So broken is he that even the people who are baying for his blood, literally yelling, crucify him moments before, have to acknowledge that someone else is going to have to carry this thing or we're never getting there. Yeah, we sing a song here. I love it here. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And Darren loosely referenced it before. Jesus is strong and kind. Um, but here we see Jesus weak and broken. I was reading this book um, this week um, where the author, Dane Ortland, um, good author, um, he's reflecting on the emotions of Jesus. And, and he commented that Jesus' emotions outstrip our own emotions in depth of feeling because he was truly human he was a, a perfect human basically he's saying that jesus represents perfect sinless humanity uh, and the rest of us feel less than him because we've been desensitized essentially by sin by our own brokenness so when we see someone suffering our sinfulness keeps us from feeling the the full weight of compassion and the pain of that person that we should feel then um but that being said, imagine then what's happening here for Jesus. And we can only imagine the perfect sinless man, Jesus, is suffering in ways that no one else ever will and with a greater intensity than anyone else would ever feel it if they went to. So I'll say it again, this is, this is Jesus, weak and broken. And to build on weak and broken, we then get Jesus uh, rejected and mocked. And, and that's another category we don't usually see our heroes in, I don't think. Um, so they, um, they crucify Jesus with a criminal on either side, we write, uh, we read. Um, and, and something we need to get our heads around here is that um, crucifixion uh, was, was sh as shameful as it was painful. It was a way for the Roman occupiers of the day to humiliate those who crossed them and to warn everyone else who might consider doing so. So the cross carried shame, carried rejection and dishonor. To be crucified meant that your final moments would be a demonstration that you were cut off, outcast from society. And that's also why he's crucified with the criminals, right? Uh, one of the... One of the other gospels says that these guys were robbers. Uh, the significance of that is that Jesus is being categorized here by who they crucify him with. In the eyes of the leaders, he's a criminal. Here's a person who warrants the same rejection, um, not even as a really noteworthy criminal, actually, as, as a low-level uh, criminal who's been sentenced to a shameful death. It took less to get to that point in those days. Um, and to just rub in the element of his rejection some more, we read that three separate groups of people then go on to mock Jesus. In fact, they, they mock 
his claims to be the Christ whilst he's dying on the cross. The religious leaders, the soldiers, and even one of the thieves, they all basically say the same thing. They say, if you're the Christ, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, the thief, he adds, and save me too. Uh, understandably, I think. But basically, prove it, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, prove it. Get down off that cross. You know, the enemies of Jesus, including Satan, maybe primarily Satan, having a field day here. God's very son is dying and no one's going to come and save him. He's outcast and mocked and he remains there on the cross. Until finally we see him in the worst, most unhero-like state of all, weak and broken, mocked and rejected. We see Jesus dead. In the shame of the cross, surrounded by thieves, mocked by by his enemies suffering immeasurably Jesus breathes his last it's it's hard to overstate just how unheroic this looks actually you know our culture is okay with the idea of heroic self-sacrifice you know they 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 went off and fought that war and they died for us because because it achieved this thing and 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 they did it so heroically the hero who lays down his life so the others can escape sort of guy right but but Jesus doesn't have that appearance here mostly just looks like he's been defeated really in the day like don't get me wrong that's not what's actually happening here but think about how it would look think about how it would feel think about how everyone would have looked at this but then uh, we're gonna we're gonna turn we're gonna pivot and look at this uh, from a slightly different angle um then we we hear the words that jesus says whilst he's up on the cross and they bring home a profound reality, which if you're a Christian, you already know, but it is just so beautifully, strikingly apparent when Jesus speaks on the cross. In weakness and brokenness, rejection and mocking and death, we see a hero like no other. We see Jesus, the saviour of the world. Jesus says three things whilst he's on the cross, and we've... Um, We've skipped past them so far in the narrative. You might have noticed we're doing that, but, but now we'll look at them. Um, first, as they crucify him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, no matter the shame and the brokenness that Jesus is carrying, Jesus does what he came here to do. He's bringing forgiveness to the enemies of God. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he carried the weight of our sin and of our punishment. And so he created a way for us to be forgiven. But there's a real risk for anyone who has uh, uh, believed that we affirm, give it a sec, that we affirm that like it's a distant point of theology, right? You know, yeah, yeah, we affirm that Jesus, you know, is the savior of the world. He died for nothing paid the atonement kind of like a financial transaction sort of thing um but as we see jesus on the cross we see that this isn't just some distant fact Uh, the winning of forgiveness for you and for me is at the very beating loving heart of jesus because even as he is crucified he prays for those who crucify him that they would be forgiven get your head around that 
The Bible teaches that all have sinned. We, we heard that before, a little stick of wood actually. Uh, all are rebels against God. All are enemies of God. But here we see what God is, has done for his enemies. For you and me, for any who will trust in Jesus, forgiveness is won at the cost of his own suffering, his own blood, his own humiliation. Second thing that Jesus says is in response to the second robber. Uh, the first robber, like we said, he mocks Jesus. He says, save yourself and save us. But the second one miraculously gets it. We don't get to know this guy's history and how on earth he came to encounter the, even the idea that Jesus is the saviour. Um, but it's a miracle, isn't it? He actually turns around and rebukes the, the first robber as much as he can turn whilst attached to a cross. Uh, and he says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Basically, we're dying, man. Aren't you afraid of what comes next? And he turns to Jesus and makes this incredible request. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and before we say what Jesus says, right, I've just said that this is about what Jesus says. Before we say that, uh, it's worth saying we learn so much about grace from this guy. Um, you know, we might be tempted of thinking of being saved in terms of what I bring to the table or what I need to bring to the table. Like, well, sure, God, God did the work to save me, but I have to bring something with me maybe at least. Um, you know, God, God will receive me. He'll welcome me in. If I've been good enough, if I'm worthy, if I've done my share of good in this wor world and, and proved that I'm worthy to him. But here's a man who literally says, uh, I'm dying like I deserve. That's his lead in to this request. Says it to the other thief. From a cross, from the most shameful, humiliating death one could imagine. A man who has lived an evil life and a man who has been distant from God and never given a second thought to being worthy of God's love. And we might say, well, yeah, a person can come to God with nothing, right, uh, with a broken life, but God expects us to, to pay him back. And, and, and before you say, oh, I don't think that, you know, it's really worth challenging our lives on this and going, do we act like, like the Christian life is paying God back for what he's done for me? You know, I expect God... God needs me to pay him back. Like he's given me so much. Now I need to pay him back. In Jesus, he'll settle my debt and then I need to work that off, right? Pay off the debt. Uh, but again, looking at the thief, the only thing he will be capable of for the remainder of his life, and I don't say days because he didn't have them, is dying. That's his one thing he has to give. It's a gurgly breath. All he brings to Jesus is that he trusts that if Jesus wants him to be in the kingdom, to be saved, that he will be. All he brings is the fact that he has nothing, but he trusts in Jesus. You know, that's how we all are, realistically. It's how we're all called to come to Jesus. You know, if you come thinking that God will accept you because you've uh, done well, then you've overestimated yourself. I'm so sorry to, to let you know that. Um, the Bible says all have sinned, all fall short, like we heard in the kids' talk today, <laughs> funnily enough. None are good, no, not one, it says. If you come thinking that you need to pay him back, 
um, then, then again you've overestimated yourself. The Bible does teach that faith in Jesus uh, will result in a good life. Uh, that, it, that it changes you, that you'll walk in good works as a believer, but not as a way of paying God back. In, in fact, it's the opposite. The ways that we are transformed to be more like Jesus, to do good works, uh, are all in the Bible's view of this grace to us. They're God working for our good to transform us. The, the, the Bible says that God prepared the good works for us beforehand. They are a gift and so is our salvation. So we are just like this thief. We bring nothing to the table but the fact that we need Jesus to save us. And we trust that he will. And just like the robber, we find that Jesus is enough. We find that he is the savior of the world and our personal savior. You know, what does Jesus say to him? He says, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, this is the same reality for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Because he has suffered for our sins, we are welcomed into God's kingdom. And we will be with him in paradise. We have the promise that God is with us in this life. And that we will be with him in eternal, joyful, fulfilled life. Paradise. It's not a short word here. Now it's worth saying that at the end of the narrative uh, of Jesus' death, just before the last thing he says, which we'll get to, two events happen miraculously which point to the truth of Jesus as the saviour of the world. First, the, the sun goes dark, Luke tells us. The Bible says that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the sun ceases to shine. That's, that's midday to 3 p.m., if you, if, if you like to think of it that way. You know, imagine if you'd been there, right? The midday sun beating down on you at full strength suddenly loses its will to shine. What's going on there is that this is a sign of the pouring out of judgment against sin. Uh, you might remember um, uh, in, the, in the Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, we're going to look at this story soon, actually, um, in, a, in another series, but uh, uh, the ninth plague, one of the ten plagues of Egypt, right? The ninth plague, the penultimate plague, the second last plague, uh, is the blotting out of the sun for three days, demonstrating God's judgment against Egypt, followed by... The last plague, the death of the firstborns. But now here we have the sun blotted out for three hours, followed by the death of, of who? Not of the firstborns of God's enemies. Now we, it's funny, we looked at that passage together as a family, like yesterday um, in, in Exodus, and, and we talked about how this is a, the demonstration of God's judgment against sin, that sin deserves death. And so this, this death happens and the, the blood of the lambs protects the people of the, the God's people. And Dad even referenced this before in the kids' talk. Um, but, but now the firstborns of the people don't die. It's the death of God's own firstborn son in payment for sin. What an amazing grace. 
second sign is that the temple curtain tears in two from top to bottom, bottom Mark and Matthew tell us. Uh, and that the significance of that is huge. Uh, and, and, and we can't go into it in full today, but let me give you the kind of postcard version uh, summary here. Uh, if you know the story of the Garden of Eden, um, so uh, then you know that when Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, uh, God places a, a, a warrior angel, a cherubim, outside the garden to protect it. Um, if you know the story, uh, that's, that's probably fairly familiar. If you don't, just roll with me. Um, then later, when God comes to live in the presence, you know, thousands of years later, by the way, comes to live in the presence of the people Israel in the tabernacle, followed by the, the temple, he directs them to build a room at the very center of the structure. And that room is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It is representative of where God is present, where you can walk into his actual felt presence in a special way, different to his presence everywhere. Uh, but then... Having told them to build this room, he tells them to build a very thick curtain across the entrance and interwoven into the pattern on the curtain, cherubim. Um, it's actually a kid's book about this. Uh, I'm going to put a plug in here because it is the best explanation of this that I've come across and I've read Systematic Theology. No. Um, uh, it's called, the, yes, The Garden, the Curtain, the Cross. Thank you, Owen. Um, <laughs> uh and, and, and in that, they call it this really helpful catchphrase for what the curtain is. The curtain's the keep-out sign, or the keep-out curtain. And the keep-out curtain remains in place whenever there is a temple, because, of course, the temple kind of gets knocked down and rebuilt a few times across history. Uh, but, but the curtain says that there is unassailable separation between God and humanity. Our sin, our rebellion against God, keeps us away from him and his blessing. And then Jesus goes to the cross and drinks dry the cup of God's wrath, God's punishment for our sin. He becomes sin for us, the Bible says. And the separation between God and humanity, which has stood since the fall of Adam and Eve, tears in two. God tears the curtain in two from top to bottom, God and man can be together again. Uh, incidentally, also signifying that God's presence is never again going to be constrained to a physical temple. His temple is his son and his people. And finally, having completed the work, we get the last words of Jesus. He cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And those words are so filled with significance. Because although the whole world broke Jesus, rejected Jesus, mocked Jesus, and ultimately killed Jesus, the ultimate reality for Jesus is that the, the Father accepts him. Having done what his Father sent him to do, he trusts that his Father has got him enough to die. So he dies, not a failure, but a victory. Having done what God sent him to do, having died to save his people from their sin. And, and as we finish looking at this climactic passage in Luke's gospel, let me leave you with, with two things. First, there's something that we really should say here. Uh, we've alluded to it a little bit, but it's that um, 
really prominent in Luke's account of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus uh, is the fact that um, the culmination of the Old Testament scriptures and of the ages is happening here in front of us. What we might miss here, because we're not super familiar sometimes with the Old Testament um, uh, as much as maybe the Jews would have been, uh, would have really stood out to a first century Jew. And I, I want to point this out because, um, because we make an audacious claim as Christians. We say that Jesus is the saviour of the world, the only uh, way to be saved from sin and death. And, and one of the reasons for that, for why that is so clear, uh, is that, uh, and Jesus will say this after his resurrection, he'll say it to his disciples that he's the fulfilment of, of the Old Testament, and, and that's it. There's the reason it's so clear is that, that he fulfills so much of the Old Testament. Like you couldn't plan this stuff. But it can be easy. Uh, an easy response for some people is to say that, you know, if you don't want to believe in Jesus or trust that he is the Savior or that he um, is who he says he is, uh, to say, well, he just kind of orchestrated some things in his life to make it look like Old Testament prophecy pointed towards him, right? And so you look at all the ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament throughout his life um, and you go, he just, he just made sure that those things were going to happen. That wouldn't be so hard. Uh, but then you get to his death. We won't even talk about his birth right now because that's the other end of the narrative. But you get to the death of Jesus and no one could orchestrate this but God. No one could plan their own death in this sort of a way that it fulfills all this stuff. We've already talked about, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the way that the, the plagues of Egypt are, are come into the death of Jesus and the way that the, the, the keep out curtain thing happens. But um, take this, you know, it has to be designed uh, by the divine. Isaiah writes that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And, and here's Jesus being crucified. And who does he get crucified with? He gets crucified with criminals. He gets numbered with the transgressors in his death. Psalm 22:18 says that they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. We kind of skipped over that verse in this narrative. Uh, but, but we get there, the soldiers casting lots to decide who gets to keep Jesus' clothes. I mean, <laughs> and maybe... Maybe you could pass off all of that, you know. Maybe you could go, maybe Jesus is just up there on the cross going, hey, these are nice clothes down here. You guys should cast some lots for them because um, he has to, you know, he needs to, needs to tick off all the Old Testament chart, you know. But then Jesus dies. And when you die, um, you cease to be able to coordinate events because you're dead. And this guy named Joseph, out of respect for Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, uh, goes to Pilate, asks for the body, puts it in his own tomb. Joseph is a fairly noteworthy character. He's a member of the, the council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and we're told in other accounts that he is also very rich. Uh, and so Jesus is buried uh, in a rich man's tomb, an expensive tomb, by the way. Not everyone could afford the tomb cut from the stone but Isaiah 53, 9 says that he will be buried with a rich man. Oh, look, here he is, even in death, fulfilling that by being placed in the wealthy man's tomb. 
People might ask, how can you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he's the savior? That's crazy. But that when, you, when you look into it, when you think, what else could explain what's going on here? It kind of becomes crazy not to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. No one else could coordinate this. Jesus calls us to have faith him in him, certainly, but at every point, the reality of his life supports that faith, makes it the reasonable choice. He doesn't call us to be kind of blind in believing, but he gives us really good reason to trust him. Second thing I want to finish with, and this is a bit of a change of of gears here, is a reminder of what the death of Jesus means for us who believe when we suffer. Um, I had a conversation with someone this week, uh, really genuinely um, uh, about how God can allow suffering in this world. This wasn't kind of the, uh, well, you know, <laughs> you're a Christian, I'm going to argue that you out of that. Um, it was someone who was just really genuinely asking um, because someone that they knew and loved was, was suffering from cancer, um, terminal cancer. Horrible disease. And to some extent, uh, I can't give a full answer to the question, why has this person got cancer? I can't say why one person suffers in one way and another doesn't suffer in that way. Um, I don't think you get that answer in this life. I can't say that God, uh, sorry, I can say that God works all things for the good of those who love him, but that's small comfort sometimes when you or someone you love is really actually suffering. But here's two things that we can say in answer to that. Our God knows our suffering intimately. And our God has done something about it. Jesus is not a distant God who knows nothing of suffering. In fact, in reality, it's kind of the other way around, really. We will never know suffering like what Jesus went through when he carried our sin and its punishment on that cross. You know, the scourging of Jesus I mentioned earlier would realistically be worse than the worst physical suffering I could presume is coming my way in my life. Um, Could be wrong, terrible things happen, but realistically... That, that would probably be the worst day of my life suffering-wise, just the whipping bit. And yet even that pales in comparison to the, the weight of punishment that fell on Jesus as he drank the cup of God's wrath against humanity and against sin. But, but and it's important to say, Jesus didn't just die so that he could emphasize this. He suffered so that he could deliver us pain suffering and sin are in this world primarily because of us that's that's one of the more painful realities because we turned away from god but when jesus died he delivered us so that one day those who believe in him would live in a place where there is no more mourning or crying or pain but rather joyful union with God in, in a perfect world forever. So yes, we suffer in this world, it's true. And I can't explain every suffering or make them go away. I try, 
Jesus does offer hope beyond suffering. Hope that overcomes suffering in the end. Because we as weak, sorry, because he was weak, broken, outcast, mocked and killed so that we could be welcomed in. straight on into a time of of communion now um, where we take the bread and the juice Um, if you're a believer in Jesus I'd invite you to join us in this Um, there's bread and cups up on these tables at the back Um, as we do this this these events what we've been reading about and talking about is what we're looking back to and we're remembering by this we are saved this is our hope this is our peace this is our deliverance that his body was broken for us and his blood was poured out for you and for me. By this we are rescued. By this we are turned from our sin and rebellion into the people of God, reconciled to our Father. So I invite you, as as you're ready, um, head on up. uh, Remember your sin and remember the Christ who has overcome it. Would you pray with me and and then just feel free to go in as you're ready. God, you spoke those words on the cross, Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you spoke of the people around you, but Lord, they could have been spoken for us because you paid the price for our forgiveness. You paid the debt of my sin and told me never to try to pay it back. You reconciled us. You rescued us. So Lord, as we come to this table, we humbly confess that we're sinners. We turn away. We still do. We still fail. But that your grace is enough. Your cross is is sufficient your broken broken body and poured out blood is sufficient to save us from our sin thank you jesus